0: section seven of invention and discovery by anonymous this librivox recording is in the public domain novel traveling carriage in eighteen thirty eight a carriage was built for a gentleman at kensington which for completeness equalled sir samuel moreland's celebrated cooking carriage of the seventeenth century it was divided into two apartments an anteroom and a drawing-room and bedchamber with every comfort the anteroom contained a table drawers and culinary utensils and the drawing-room was furnished with sofas sofa bedstead six chairs table cupboards and a chandelier for nine lights a stove and fuel the length of the carriage was twenty-nine feet and the breadth nine feet and the length of the drawing-room twenty feet the whole weighed two tons and a half enemies of the ostrich the ostrich would appear to be a bird of many enemies from the following statement in sir j e alexander's narrative of his expedition of discovery in south africa according to native testimony the male ostrich sits on the nest which is merely a hollow place scooped out in the sand during the night the better to defend the eggs from jackals and other nocturnal plunderers towards morning he brummels or utters a grumbling sound for the female to come and take his place and she sits on the eggs during the cool of the morning and evening in the middle of the day the pair leaving the eggs in charge of the sun and forgetting that the foot may crush them or the wild beast break them employ themselves in feeding off the tops of bushes in the plain near the nest looking aloft at this time of day a white egyptian vulture may be seen soaring in mid-air with a large stone between his talons having carefully surveyed the ground below him he suddenly lets fall the stone and then follows it in rapid descent let the hunter run to the spot and he will find a nest of probably a score of eggs each equal in size to twenty-four hen's eggs some of them broken by the vulture the jackal too is said to roll the eggs together to break them and the hyena pushes them off with his nose to bury them at a distance fireproof house on putney heath upon putney heath by the roadside stands an obelisk to record the success of a discovery made in the last century of the means of building a house which no ordinary application of ignited combustibles could be made to consume the inventor was mr david hartley to whom the house of commons voted twenty five hundred pounds to defray the expense of the experimental building which stood about one hundred yards from the obelisk in seventeen seventy four king george the third and queen charlotte took their breakfast in one of the rooms while in the apartment beneath fires were lighted on the floor and various inflammable materials were ignited to attest that the rooms above were fireproof, Hartley's secret lay in the floors being double, and there being interposed between the two boards sheets of laminated iron and copper, not thicker than tin-foil or stout paper, which rendered the floor air-tight, and thereby intercepted the ascent of the heated air, so that, although the inferior boards were actually charred, the metal prevented the combustion taking place in the upper flooring another experiment took place on the hundred and tenth anniversary of the great fire of london when a patriotic lord mayor and the corporation of london witnessed the indestructible property of the structure yet the invention was never carried into further practice the house was many years after converted into a tasteful villa although the obelisk records the success of the experiment the last of the alchemists the last true believer in alchemy was according to mr brand one peter wolfe who occupied chambers in barnards Inn, holborn while in london and usually spent the summer in paris he died in eighteen o five about the year eighteen o one another solitary adept lived or rather starved in london in the person of an editor of an evening newspaper who expected to compound the alkalist if he could keep his materials digested in a lamp furnace for the space of seven years the lamp burnt brightly during six years eleven months and some odd days besides and then unluckily it went out why it went out the adept could never guess but he was certain that if the name could only have burnt to the end of the septenary cycle his experiment would have succeeded in eighteen twenty eight sir richard phillips visited an alchemist named kellerman at the village of lilly midway between luton and hitchen he was believed by some of his neighbours to have succeeded in discovering the philosopher's stone and also the universal solvent he had been a man of fashion and an adventurer on the turf, but had for many years shut himself up at Lily and been inaccessible and invisible to the world, his house being barricaded and the walls of his grounds protected by hurdles with spring-guns so planted as to resist intrusion in every direction. Sir Richard, however, obtained an interview with this strange being, and the account of his visit is very graphic. Quote, The front door was opened and mr kellerman presented himself i lament that i have not the pencil of hogarth for a more original figure never was seen he was about six feet high and of athletic make on his head was a white nightcap and his dress consisted of a long greatcoat once green and a sort of jockey waistcoat with three tiers of pockets his manner was extremely polite and graceful but my attention was chiefly absorbed by his singular physiognomy. His complexion was deeply sallow, and his eyes large, black, and rolling. He conducted me into a very large parlour with a window looking backward, and having locked the door and put the key into his pocket, he desired me to be seated in one of two large arm-chairs covered with sheepskins. The room was a realisation of the well-known picture of Tenier's alchemist the floor was strewed with retorts crucibles alembics jars and bottles of various shapes intermingled with old books the whole covered with dust and cobwebs different shelves were filled in the same manner and on one side stood the alchemist's bed in a corner somewhat shaded from the light i beheld two heads white with dark wigs on them i entertained no doubt therefore that among other fancies he was engaged in re-making the brazen speaking head of roger bacon and albertus he then gave me a history of his studies mentioned some men in london whom i happened to know and who he alleged had assured him that they had made gold that having in consequence examined the works of the ancient alchemists and discovered the key which they had studiously concealed from the multitude he had pursued their system under the influence of new lights and after suffering numerous disappointments owing to the ambiguity with which they described their processes he had at length happily succeeded had made gold and could make as much more as he pleased even to the extent of paying off the national debt in the coin of the realm i yielded to the declaration expressed my satisfaction at so extraordinary a discovery and asked him to show me some of the precious metal which he had made not so said he i will show it to no one i made lord liverpool the offer that if he would introduce me to the king i would show it to his majesty but lord liverpool insolently declined on the ground that there was no precedent and i am therefore determined that the secret shall die with me it is true that in order to avenge myself of such contempt i made a communication to the french ambassador prince Polignac, and offered to go to france and transferred to the french government the entire advantages of the discovery but after deluding me and shuffling for some time i found it necessary to treat him with the same contempt as the others every court in europe he added knows that i have made the discovery and they are all in a confederacy against me lest by giving it to any one i should make that country master of all the rest the world sir he exclaimed with great emotion is in my hands and my power i now inquired whether he had been alarmed by the ignorance of the people in the country so as to shut himself up in this unusual manner no he replied not on their account wholly they are ignorant and insolent enough but it was to protect myself against the governments of europe who are determined to get possession of my secret by force i have been he exclaimed twice fired at through that window and three times attempted to be poisoned they believed i had written a book containing my secrets and to get possession of this book has been their object to baffle them i burnt all that i had ever written and i have so guarded the windows with spring guns and have such a collection of combustibles in the range of bottles which stand at your elbow that i could destroy a whole regiment of soldiers if sent against me he then related that as a further protection he lived entirely in that room and permitted no one to come into the house while he had locked up every room except that with patent padlocks and sealed the keyholes in a conversation of two or three hours with the narrator kellerman enlarged upon the merits of the ancient alchemists and on the blunders and impertinent assumptions of modern chemists he quoted roger and lord bacon paracelsus boyle Borhava, wolf and others to justify his pursuits as to the term philosopher's stone he alleged that it was a mere figure to deceive the vulgar he appeared to give full credit to the silly story of Dee's assistant kelly finding some of the powder of projection in the tomb of roger bacon at glastonbury by means of which as he said kelly for a length of time supported himself in princely splendour kellerman added that he had discovered the blacker than black of apollonius it was itself the powder of projection for producing gold it further appeared he had lived in the premises of lily for twenty-three years during fourteen of which he had pursued his alchemical studies with unremitting ardour keeping eight assistants for the purpose of superintending his crucibles two at a time relieving each other every six hours that he had exposed some preparations to intense heat for many months at a time but that all except one crucible had burst and that kellerman said contained the true blacker than black one of his assistants however protested that no gold had ever been found and that no mercury had ever been fixed for he was quite sure kellerman could not have concealed it from his assistants while on the contrary they witnessed his severe disappointment at the result of his most elaborate experiments by the way in the introduction to zanoni sir e bulwer lytton has given a clever sketch of an eccentric antiquarian bookseller in the neighbourhood of covent garden who is said to have assembled the most notable collection ever amassed by an enthusiast of the works of alchemist cabalist and astrologer the vindictive glare and uneasy vigilance and the frowning and groaning of the anti-bookseller for it absolutely went to his heart when a customer entered his shop. Are all very characteristic and lifelike in this sketch. When free from such annoyance, he might be seen gloating over his musty, unsalable treasures on which he had, it was said, spent a fortune. Celebrated diamonds. We read marvellous records in modern books too of the high prices realized for diamonds but according to dr eurer it does not appear that any sum exceeding one hundred and fifty thousand pounds has ever been given for a diamond this statement made in the year eighteen twenty has since received signal confirmation on july twenty eighteen thirty seven the nasik diamond was sold by auction in london and realised only seven thousand two hundred pounds although it was estimated by the east india company to be worth thirty thousand pounds this diamond was among the spoils which were captured by the combined armies under the command of the marquis of hastings in the british conquest of india and formed part of the deccan booty this magnificent gem is as large as a good-sized walnut weighs three hundred and fifty seven and one-half grains is of dazzling whiteness and is as pure as a drop of dew after the above sale it was purchased by the marquis of westminster who more than once wore it on the hilt of his court sword it was presented by his lordship to the marchioness of westminster on her birthday along with the Arcot diamond ear-rings once belonging to queen charlotte and disposed of at the above sale for eleven thousand pounds the great mogul's diamond about the size of half a hen's egg and the pit diamond are well known among the crown jewels of russia is a magnificent diamond weighing a hundred and ninety-five carats it is the size of a small pigeon's egg and was formerly the eye of a brahminical idol whence it was purloined by a french soldier it passed through several hands and was ultimately purchased by the empress catherine for ninety thousand pounds in ready money and an annuity of four thousand pounds one of the largest diamonds in the world was found in the river abaiti about ninety-two miles northwest of the diamond district of cerro do frio in brazil it is of nearly an ounce in weight and has been estimated by roma de lille at the enormous sum of three hundred millions it is uncut but the king of portugal to whom it belonged had a hole bored through it in order to wear it suspended about his neck on gala days no sovereign possessed so fine a collection of diamonds as this prince in eighteen forty six the brazilian journals announced that a negro had found in the diamond district of bahia a rough diamond weighing nearly an ounce the approximative value was stated at forty five thousand pounds but it was sold by the finder for thirty five pounds the most celebrated diamond of our times we however suspect to be that called the mountain of light Co-i-Nor, which belonged to runjit singh and now belongs to queen victoria it was once valued at three million pounds is very brilliant and without a flaw of any kind runjit's string of pearls was it is thought if possible even handsomer than the diamond they were about three hundred in number literally the size of small marbles all picked pearls and round and perfect both in shape and colour two hours before he died he sent for all his jewels and gave the above diamond said to be the largest in the world to a hindu temple his celebrated string of pearls to another and his favourite fine horses with all their jewelled trappings worth three hundred thousand pounds to a third the nizam's diamond is another wonderful gem it was first seen in the hands of a native child in india who was playing with it ignorant of its value and a considerable sum being offered for it led to the discovery of its being a real diamond in its rough state it weighs two hundred and seventy-seven carats and as the rough stones are usually taken to give but half of their weight when cut or polished it would allow a hundred and thirty-eight carats dr d the necromancer dr john dee was a man who made a conspicuous figure in the sixteenth century he was born in london in fifteen twenty seven he was an eminent scholar and an indefatigable mathematician when at cambridge he was mostly occupied eighteen hours of the twenty-four in study while here he superintended the exhibition of a greek play of aristophanes among the machinery of which he introduced an artificial scarabaeus or beetle which flew up to the palace of jupiter with a man on his back and a basket of provisions the astonished spectators ascribed this feat to the arts of the magician and d annoyed by these suspicions found it convenient to withdraw to the continent Dee's principal study in early life lay in astrology, and accordingly, upon the accession of Elizabeth, Robert Dudley, her chief favourite, was sent to consult the doctor as to the aspect of the stars that they might fix on an auspicious day for celebrating her coronation. Some years after, we find him again on the continent, and in 1571, being taken ill at Louvain, the Queen sent over two physicians to attend him elizabeth afterwards visited him at his house at mortlake to view his collection of mathematical instruments and curiosities and about this time employed him to defend her title to countries discovered in different parts of the globe he says of himself that he received the most advantageous offers from charles v ferdinand maximilian ii and rodolph emperor of germany and from the czar of muscovy an offer of two thousand pounds per annum on condition that he would reside in his dominions had d gone no further than this all would have been well but he was ruined by his enthusiasm he dreamed perpetually of the philosopher's stone and was haunted with the belief of intercourse with spirits one day in november fifteen eighty two he tells us that as he was at prayer there appeared to him the angel uriel at the west window of his museum who gave him a translucent stone or crystal of a convex form that presented apparitions and even emitted sounds so that the observer could hold conversations ask questions and receive answers from the figures he saw in this mirror with this speculum blackstone or showstone d used to call his spirits and kelly his associate did all his feats upon kelly who acted as seer reported what spirits he saw and what they said whilst d who sat at a table recorded the spiritual intelligence a folio volume of their notes was published by casaubon and many more containing the most unintelligible jargon remain in manuscript in the british museum together with the consecrated cakes of wax marked with mathematical figures and hieroglyphics used in their mummeries at length d fell into disrepute his chemical apparatus and other stock in trade were destroyed by the mob who made an attack upon his house but the mirror is stated to have been saved It subsequently passed into the collection of the mordaunts earls of peterborough in whose catalogue it is called the black stone into which dr d used to call his spirits from the mordaunts it passed to lady elizabeth germain and from her to john duke of argyle whose son lord frederick campbell presented it to horace walpole and on the breaking up of the collection at strawberry hill in eighteen forty two this precious relic was sold it was described in the catalogue as a singularly interesting and curious relic of the superstition of our ancestors on the celebrated speculum of kennel Cole, highly polished in a leathern case bulwer in his romance of zanoni introduces a mirror of this kind and every tale of superstition has its magic glass it is worth while to compare this speculum with the celebrated ink mirror described in lane's work on the modern egyptians it may at least illustrate the curious inquiry upon coincident superstitions voyage of manufacture the produce of our factories has preceded even our most enterprising travellers captain clapperton saw at the court of the sultan bello in the interior of africa pewter dishes with the london stamp and had at the royal table a piece of meat served up on a white wash-hand basin of english manufacture the cotton of india is conveyed by british ships round half our planet to be woven by british skill in the factories of lancashire it is again set in motion by british capital and transported to the very plains whereon it grew and is repurchased by the lords of the soil which gave it birth at a cheaper price than that at which their coarser machinery enables them to manufacture it themselves at calicut in the east indies whence the cotton cloth called calico derives its name the price of labour is a fraction of that in england yet the market is supplied from british looms sir david brewster's kaleidoscope the idea of this instrument constructed for the purpose of creating and exhibiting a variety of beautiful and perfectly symmetrical forms first occurred to sir david brewster in eighteen fourteen when he was engaged in experiments on the polarization of light by successive reflections between plates of glass the reflectors were in some instances inclined to each other and he had occasion to remark the circular arrangement of the images of a candle round a centre or the multiplication of the sectors formed by the extremities of the glass plates in repeating at a subsequent period the experiments of m biot on the action of fluids upon light sir david brewster placed the fluids in a trough formed by two plates of glass cemented together at an angle and the eye being necessarily placed at one end some of the cement which had been pressed through between the plates appeared to be arranged into a regular figure the remarkable symmetry which it presented led to dr brewster's investigation of the cause of this phenomenon and in so doing he discovered the leading principles of the kaleidoscope by the advice of his friends dr brewster took out a patent for his invention in the specification of which he describes the kaleidoscope in two different forms the instrument however having been shown to several opticians in london became known before he could avail himself of his patent and being simple in principle it was at once largely manufactured It is calculated that not less than 200,000 kaleidoscopes were sold in three months in London and Paris, though out of this number, Dr. Brewster says, not perhaps 1,000 were constructed upon scientific principles or were capable of giving anything like a correct idea of the power of his kaleidoscope. Lord Ross's Leviathan Telescope the late earl of ross with a devotion to science which has few parallels constructed this gigantic telescope at his seat parsonstown in the south of ireland to the frame of the vast instrument is fixed a large cubical wooden box about eight feet wide in this there is a door through which two men go in to remove or to replace the cover of the mirror to this box is fastened the tube which is made of deal staves and hooped like a huge cask it is about forty feet long and eight feet diameter in the middle the dean of ely once walked through the tube with an umbrella up the stupendous speculum weighs three tons the casting and polishing of it were labors of wonderful skill the telescope is not turned to any part of the sky but limited to the range of half an hour on each side of the meridian through which its motion is given by powerful clockwork independent of the observer for this purpose it stands between two pieces of masonry of gothic design which harmonize with lord ross's castle one of these piers sustaining the galleries for the observer and the second the clockwork and other apparatus this is an elegant arrangement of counterpoises to balance the enormous mass so that a comparatively slight force only is required to elevate or depress it a correspondent of the mechanics magazine thus describes the capacity of this wonderful instrument such is its power that if a star of the first magnitude were removed to such a distance that its light would be three millions of years in reaching us this telescope would nevertheless show it to the human eye is it to be wondered at then that with such an instrument grand discoveries should be made it has been pointed to the heavens and although at the beginning of its career it has already accomplished mighty things there are nebulous spots in the heavens which have baffled all the instruments hitherto constructed but this telescope resolves their true character completely among the wonderful objects which have been subject to its scrutiny is the nebula in the constellation of orion i have had an opportunity of examining it it is one of the most curious objects in the whole heavens it is not round and it throws off furious lights from the time of herschel it has been subjected to the examination of the most powerful instruments but it grew more and more mysterious and diverse in its character when lord ross's great telescope was directed to its examination it for a long time resisted its power he found it required patient examination night after night and month after month at length a pure atmosphere gave him the resolution of its constitution and the stars of which it is composed burst upon the sight of man for the first time origin of reflecting lighthouses in the last century at a meeting of a society of mathematicians at liverpool one of the members proposed to lay a wager that he would read a paragraph of a newspaper at ten yards distance with the light of a farthing candle the wager was laid and the proposer having covered the inside of a wooden dish with pieces of looking-glass fastened in with glazier's putty placed his reflector behind the candle and won his wager one of the company marked this experiment with a philosophic eye this was captain hutchinson the dock master with whom originated the reflecting lighthouses erected at liverpool in seventeen sixty three waste of human life in eighteen twenty five there was opened in Cochin china a canal twenty-three miles long eighty feet wide and twelve feet deep it was begun and finished in six weeks Although carried through large forests and over extensive marshes, twenty thousand men worked upon it day and night and It is stated that seven thousand died of fatigue End of Section seven.